The People's History of Kansas City podcast is supported by the Kemper Museum of Contemporary Art, celebrating 30 years at the Block Party on Saturday, May 4th. Visitors can enjoy music, food trucks, exhibitions, and artist-led activities. Learn more at KemperArt.org. 75 years ago, this week, this song was recorded by Kansas City blues singer and pianist Julia Lee. Grab it in the night, grab it in the day, grab it right now, it'll get away, you better snatch and grab it. Snatch and grab it was number one on the U.S. Billboard R&B chart for 12 weeks. But it was only Julia Lee's first big hit. In an iconic jazz destination like this one, her legacy has been overshadowed. But Julia Lee was Kansas City's most beloved entertainer for three decades. You heard a lot of stories, but this is something new. I said, who's Julia Lee? And she goes, you never heard of Julia Lee? Julia Lee, a black woman in the early 1900s, made a name for herself by doing what she wanted to do. In those days, they called it salty. She was salty. But there's so much more to her story, her legacy and her deep influence on this place that nobody really knows. That's the only way he could watch his wife perform in the club, because blacks weren't allowed to be in the audience. Julia Lee liked Kansas City. She didn't want to move. That was my basic reason for going to Kansas City and making records. Julia Lee certainly deserves more than a spotlight. She needs more recognition. I mean, she was one of a number of women who were asserting themselves musically and socially when that was not socially acceptable. From KCUR Studios, this is A People's History of Kansas City. I'm Suzanne Hogan, and we're devoting this entire episode to the one, the only, Julia Lee, Kansas City's blues queen. I'll let producer Mackenzie Martin pick it up from here. You know how as kids, a lot of us have these skewed views of who our grandparents really are? Like, we know them, but we tend to think of them as a little old-fashioned. We don't picture them pushing limits or breaking the rules. Well, this is how Julian Duncan used to think of his paternal grandmother, Julia Lee. I mean, he didn't have much to go on. He never actually got to meet her. My mother was pregnant with me when she passed. Oh, wow. So that's why I was named after her. Julian says his dad wasn't one to brag about family, but he learned the basics as he was growing up in Detroit. His grandma, Julia, had been a jazz and blues musician in Kansas City. She was an incredible piano player and really warm and loving. Julian's dad said they had been really close. When he was in the military, all the pictures were to her, you know, like to my loving mother. But Julian's dad never really talked about her music. He never played her records when you were growing up? No. Never did. I guess it was just because he missed her. (laughs) Probably so. You know, some people just can't stand to hear, you know, certain things. It just bothers them too much. You know, he he couldn't couldn't do it. If he did it, it wasn't around me. Then in 1999, Julian's dad passed away. And when Julian was going through his things, he came across this five CD set of Julia Lee with meticulous liner notes from when a German record label had reissued her hits and some previously unreleased tunes back in 1995. And my father never opened it up. Maybe he didn't want to hear her voice. I don't know. But I opened it up when my father died. So I took all those CDs in the car with me and I just listened to them one by one. My sin was loving you. I did come close to crying. I wanted up and I had to pull over while I was driving because I had never heard her voice. 
What did you think? Excellent, excellent singer. But her her music, you know, was a little dirty. Come and see me, baby. Please don't come too soon. And that kind of surprised me because she did one song called Lotus Flower. And I read up on it and she was talking about weed. I was like, Grandma Julia was talking about weed? The title Lotus Blossom was actually suggested by Julia's manager. Julia's original, unreleased version was a bit more on the nose. Sweet marijuana, marijuana. And it was more than just that. Julia Lee's music was so raunchy, radio stations refused to play a number of her songs. Her lyrics even got her arrested once. We'll get to that later. It really shocked me, because my father never told me her music was like that. He never said that. Suddenly, Grandma Julia had Julian's full attention. And once he started looking, he started finding references to Julia Lee all over the place. Snatch and Grab It Alone was featured on an NFL commercial, the movie Cadillac Man starring Robin Williams, and an episode of A Prairie Home Companion. But these kinds of national references are nothing compared to how she was viewed in her hometown. She was Kansas City's most popular entertainer from the 1920s up until her passing in 1958. KCUR listeners know Chuck Haddix as the host of The Fish Fry, but he's also the curator of the Mar Sound Archive in the Miller Nichols Library at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, the author of multiple Kansas City jazz books, and, I can't stress this one enough, a huge Julia Lee fan. This is my vertical clipping file on Julia Lee. How many articles do you think you have there, Jeff? Probably about 20, 30. <laughs> the first time I became aware of Julia Lee, Dolores Hobley had a uh, shop at the old Westport Flea Market. I looked at this 78. I said, who's Julia Lee? She goes, you never heard of Julia Lee? And I said, oh, maybe I should listen to Julia Lee. What did you think of her music, like, personally? It appealed to me a great deal because it bridged so many different styles. It's rooted in the blues, but also in the Kansas City jazz tradition. On this young man, I must say I was attracted to the risque lyrics that she was known for. All this beef and big ripe tomatoes, that's all I need. Julia used to say she sang songs her mother taught her not to sing, but they weren't overly inappropriate. She was famous for double entendre songs. When you first listened, it was easy to miss. The lyrics were just inappropriate enough to get censored. Our song, uh, Snatch and Grab It, sold over half a million copies without any airplay because people fed quarters in the jukebox and played it. Opportunity, opportunity is knocking at your door. Back then, dirty blues was a whole genre a genre that, to many, Julia Lee was the reigning queen of. Well, she always had her signature bangs and was known for her sharp dressing with the feathers. Most people remember her smile because she was always smiling and joking around. She was a very jovial individual. You could say Julia was destined to be a musician from birth in 1902. Her dad played the violin, and her brother George sang and played the tenor saxophone. She was studying piano by age 10. She started out playing house parties and church socials in high school before forming a trio with George. How would you describe her voice? She has this very distinctive way of phrasing. 
and a very playful delivery that, that gave her a very distinctive sound. And she was trained. She was not a self-taught musician. She studied uh, music with Major N. Clark Smith at Lincoln High School. They had a very rigid music program there. From there, she went on to study advanced piano techniques at Western University in Quindaro, Kansas. Those schools were the center of the community. Uh, Lincoln High School was the only high school at that time that served African Americans. And Western University, of course, was a university that that served African Americans when there were uh, just not that many educational opportunities for African Americans. At this point in Julia's story, it's the 1920s, and jazz is in full swing in Kansas City. Political boss Tom Pendergast didn't enforce prohibition, so Kansas City was a wide-open town in the 20s. Clubs never closed, the liquor never stopped flowing, and of course there was gambling also, and other forms of vice, just pretty much anything you wanted. It was a good time to be a musician. Downtown, you could find 50 jazz clubs in a six-block radius between 12th and 18th Streets. 12th Street was an entertainment strip that stretched miles east. It was also a place where the races came together. There were black and tan clubs where during the time of segregation, African Americans and white people could mix freely. And it was here in these clubs that Julia Lee honed her improvisational skills, holding her own among older male musicians at late night jams. Everybody knew Julia Lee. She was a liberated young woman playing in jazz clubs when a lot of women were not allowed in these clubs. Her first big gig was singing and playing piano for the George E. Lee Novelty Singing Orchestra, led by her older brother, who wasn't always the easiest to work with. He was a uh, stingy band leader. He would fine band members for breaking the rules and didn't pocket the money. He was very flashy. As a result, he never cultivated really a stable band. One thing that George did consistently have was Julia, and that proved to be important to his success. At the time, Julia and George were locked in what has been described as a friendly rivalry with Benny Moten and his band, the Kansas City Orchestra. I mean, they were two of the top bands in Kansas City, and they shared the limelight, uh, but also they battled. Kansas City was known for their marathon battles of the bands that sometimes would include as many as eight full-size bands battling for supremacy at Paseo Hall. And by 1929, the band coming out on top in these battles was the George E. Lee Band. I went to St. James in Farmery And I found my baby there Benny Moten's band was seen as musically superior, but in the end, Julia and George's vocals and general showmanship won out. And in 1932, there was even a moment of collaboration when the bands briefly merged. There were very few women instrumentalists working with bands in the late teens, early 1920s. She was really a pioneer, her and Mary Lou Williams. In Kansas City, that's one of the things that really distinguishes Kansas City jazz style. When do you think she kind of started singing all that risque stuff? It was a part of her repertoire from the beginning. And Won't You Come Over to My House, of course, she recorded it in 29 and then later recut it back in 1944. Come on over to my house, baby. Nobody home but me. And at that time, young women did not extend an invitation like that to young men in those days. That being said, she was married in the 1920s to her first husband, Frank Duncan, the young catcher and manager of the Kansas City Monarchs baseball team. 
it becomes a metaphor for the marriage of baseball and jazz in Kansas City. Buck O'Neill talked about how the ball players would all be at Paseo Hall jamming with the musicians. And then on Sundays when the, the Monarchs played, all the, all the musicians would go see the Monarchs. So there's that symbiotic relationship between the two. Julia and Frank's only son, also named Frank Duncan, followed in his father's footsteps and became a famous pitcher for the Kansas City Monarchs. And I should say, this is partly why Julia Lee's grandson, Julian Duncan, was so out of the loop on how famous his grandmother was. As Frank's son, there were two famous baseball players in his immediate family. So Julia's career got slightly overshadowed during his childhood. My grandfather would cry every time we'd come to Kansas City. When he'd look around and see his whole family at the dinner table, and then my grandmother, the only grandmother I knew, my, my grandfather's second wife, her name was Bertha. She was like, Frank, what are, what are you crying? He was like, no, 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 it's these, it's these damn onions. I'm not, I'm not crying. He would never admit crying. Julia, on the other hand, was decidedly not a crier like her husband. But my father would always tell me my grandmother was more like me, where, you know, she didn't show all her emotions. What he means is that Julia didn't show her cards. She was charming, but also a bit mysterious. She was never too up or too down. She was just steady, the ever-enchanting performer. And part of that might have been that she had to be. She had to overcome a lot just to perform. Out in the cold again. My grandmother played in a lot of segregated nightclubs, things like that, you know, where the only the entertainers could be black, not the audience. And my grandfather wanted to see her play. And the only way he could do it was he had to get an empty instrument case and sit up there with the band like he was a band member. That's the only way he could watch his wife perform in the club because blacks weren't allowed to be in the audience. Julia was comfortable playing those kinds of shows here in Kansas City. But racism was a part of the reason that she famously hated traveling. Julia, like other African-American musicians who toured, were at the mercy of police in small towns, audiences who were racist. That's why in 1936, the Green Book was created, a national guidebook for road-tripping African-Americans, providing a list of safe places to eat and sleep across the United States. Out of the more than 10,000 sites that were listed, 133 were in Kansas City. And it's not just, you know, people saying offensive things to them. It's chances they could get lynched or even worse. So Julia already had a serious apprehension about traveling when something else happened in 1930 that really put her off tours. By this point, she had divorced Frank Duncan and married a club owner. She was traveling with her brother's band, traveling the Midwest on the old uh, Southwest territorial tradition uh, route. And um, they were in a horrible wreck. And it killed one of the band members, and the car flipped over, and her husband was cursing. Julia told him, stop cursing and start praying. She really thought she was going to die in that wreck. She also didn't like to fly. She would say that she would fly if she could keep her one foot on the ground. And so she was very reluctant to travel, and that really held her back, her, her career back. Because uh, in, during the 40s and 50s, most musicians' bread and butters was playing on the road. In 1934, Julia parted ways with her brother's band for good so she could stay close to home. 
So it's almost like her life could have had a totally different trajectory if that 1930 car crash hadn't happened. I mean, not that I want to play what if, but it seems like that kind of put her on a totally different path than someone like Mary Lou Williams. Yeah, Mary Lou Williams, uh, of course, traveled widely with Andy Kirk, and she didn't like to travel that much either, but she did it. It wasn't what people thought she should do, but Julia stayed in Kansas City anyway. Going out on her own meant that she could play whatever she wanted to. And it was from a Kansas City club that she caught her big break in the 1940s. Of course, I basically went in there to record Julia Lee. That was my basic reason for going to Kansas City and making records. That's coming up right after this. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In 1935, Julia Lee began a 15-year residency at Milton's Tap Room. Let's sit down and drink it over. There's still time before you go. Milton's was one of the most popular clubs in Kansas City. Everybody went to Milton's, both local and people from out of town. They came even during the Great Depression, partly drawn perhaps by the fact that owner Milton Morris had one of the first air conditioners in the city. But according to Chuck Haddix, who personally knew Milton, the draw extended far beyond that. He was hilarious. He told the craziest jokes. He and Julia were quite the pair when it came to entertaining. If you think of Julia as this reliable, calm, husky-voiced performer, Milton was like her unpredictable prankster partner in crime. He'd do things like glue quarters to the floor and watch people try and pick them up. Milton made his own money. He printed his own money. Milton bucks, he called them. And also, Milton ran for a governor a number of times and got as many as 10,000 votes. He was just crazy, man. Julia loved playing at Milton's, in part because she made bank. She was so well-versed musically that she could play any audience request. And she remembered people's favorites, so she'd play them when they walked in the door. You can be the clothespin, I'll be the line. We'll hang out together, won't that be fine? Naturally, the audience ate it up. They'd tip her generously with money and shots of bourbon. And she made as much as $60 a night from the kitty, which is a lot of money in those days. It was a lot of money. People also loved her for her witty banter and the way she'd improvise the lyrics of already suggestive tunes to make them even more suggestive, for tips, of course. To put it another way, free of her brother's band, Julia Lee thrived in nightclubs. She was the most sought-after entertainer in Kansas City. It wasn't all fun and games, though. Once, in 1941, Julia's music got her into some legal problems. It was during Kansas City's cleanup when civic reformers had started closing Kansas City clubs. The liquor control agents raided Milton's club, and they arrested Julia for singing, quote, risque songs. And down at the police station, she uh, protested that these songs had been sung in some of the finest homes in Kansas City. Her wealthy benefactors came to her rescue, and she was never really formally charged other than just being humiliated in public. 
According to Milton Morris, he saw the offending liquor agent out of the baseball game years later and paid a kid five bucks to push him down the stairs. So Milton got his revenge for that one. The only person Julia regularly shared the stage with was Sam Baby Lovett, her longtime drummer. He was her accompanist of choice. And she was left-handed, so she was able to play the bass line on the piano. When you're alone. Something you read about Julia Lee time and time again is that people really felt connected to her. On stage, she had this commanding presence and warmth. Supposedly, people would confess to her. People would go to her and tell her their woes, and she would make them feel better by uh, you know, touching their arm and telling them things would get better, and, and also with the music, too. It was this natural stage presence that partly got Julia her big break in the form of a contract with Los Angeles-based Capitol Records. Here's how the story goes. In 1944, a Capitol Records producer named Dave Dexter Jr. showed up to what is now known as the Mutual Musicians Foundation to recruit Kansas City musicians for a Casey jazz album geared at a national audience, pulling in Julia and a number of other high-profile musicians like Jay McShann and Walter Page. Then the album came out, and Julia was the hit. Cause the sun's gonna shine in my back door someday. She had made records before, but not like this. DJ started playing her song more than any other on the four-volume album. The record label didn't need much convincing. Capitol signed her in 1946 and immediately started shaping her solo career. Suddenly, Julia was occasionally taking the train to California and putting out records under the name Julia Lee and her boyfriends. Listen, babe, what you done to me? You're the only one that wanna see. You got to give me what you Backed by longtime friends like Baby Love It, as well as up-and-coming musicians, Julia's initial hits included Gotta Give Me What You Got, Snatch and Grab It, and King Size Papa. A song that, in 1949, she and Baby Lovett performed for President Harry Truman at the White House. They didn't water it down. They played the real Kansas City stuff. I got a man that's more than eight foot tall, four foot shoulders, and that ain't all. King size papa. He's my king size papa. This success was Julia's because of her exceptional talent and hard work. But it's also partly thanks to Dave Dexter Jr., the music journalist turned Capitol Records executive who produced her songs in a way that capitalized on her pop sensibilities, helping her appeal to a mass audience. Dave Dexter Jr. was born here in Kansas City. And an important thing to know is that he didn't discover Julia Lee in the 1940s. He had been listening to her since he was a teen. He grew up listening to her. Uh, Dexter, when he was in high school, would go to these dances at these ballrooms and go to clubs. And he would always go by himself because he always, without a date, because he wanted to listen to music. And he absolutely loved Julia Lee. And it wasn't really an accident, putting her on that national Casey Jazz album, getting her out to a national audience. He had always wanted to put her on records. And the story of how Dave Dexter made Julia Lee a star, it's a good story. And it's one Chuck Haddix is very familiar with. Because he knew Dave Dexter, and he heard a lot of Dave's stories about working with Julia, some of which I'm about to play for you. This is tape two of a series of interviews conducted with Dave Dexter Jr. 
I'm Chuck Haddix. It's Wednesday morning, January the 11th, 1989, and these interviews are conducted at Dave's home in Sherman Oaks, California. And can you kind of set up this interview that you did with him? Yeah, uh, Dave Dexter donated his uh, collection to the Sound Archive. I went out to box it up, and I took a cassette deck along with me, and I just happened to be at the right place at the right time. Judy would just play those beautiful chords and sing songs, and I was enchanted with her. Didn't she also have a very large repertoire of songs? Oh, I don't think anybody had more songs that they knew and remembered every word in every song. And she always played the right chords. Her pianistics were enviable. When you hear her perform Love in Bloom, that's an accomplished pianist there, but unfortunately it was never released. In some ways, Julia Lee got typecast, but she was so much more than just her hits. Julia was just a force of nature. Who knows if they issued that recording, it might have helped her break her mold a little bit. Oh, I'm glad I still have a few of those old things that I dubbed off on cassette. I can listen to them. Dave Dexter had just had a series of small strokes when Chuck did these interviews, and he died the following year. And as a result, you can almost hear this wistfulness in the hours of recordings that Chuck kept. It's a funny thing about all these Hollywood musicians. Almost all of them came up with the big-name bands. And a lot of them weren't very particularly enthusiastic or cooperative. And I couldn't stand musicians like that on a record date. Because all my things, there was no written music. Everything we did, we put together there on the date. We didn't even know what songs we were going to record. But it was quite an honor to, to be called on a Julia Lee record date because they were such fun. <laughs> Don't get drunk now. Okay, here we go. They would go in with a sketch and the lyrics, and then they would improvise that song on the spot. This is the last call for alcohol this evening. Drink up, drink up, drink up, and order again. I'd write out little blues lyrics hum to her in this horrible voice of mine. And she'd hit a chord and go right into it, run it down once and phrase it exactly the way I had it in my mind. In 20 minutes, we had a master all made. Jazz is improvisation, spontaneous art. It is art made up, it exists, and then when they, the musicians put down their instrument, it no longer is there. Joe Turner would, in Kansas City, would take 124 choruses on a song and never repeat himself. That was part of the tradition, and Julia was really the culmination of that tradition in a lot of ways. Dave Dexter was the one who brought Julia to a national audience, but three decades after her death, there was one thing that still bothered him. And I've long, long had this terrible regret that I couldn't get to Julia and put her on record until about 1944. If she had been making records back when Holiday and Mildred Bailey were making records in the 30s, I'm convinced, and I'll always be convinced, that she would have been one of the four or five most popular singers. Once I lived the life of a millionaire. In the 1950s, Julia's career slowed down, 
Capitol Records dropped her, but she kept recording. In fact, free from the commercial limitations of working for a place like Capitol, she could finally play anything she wanted to again. And there's really nothing that suggests Julia ever wanted to be more famous than she was. If anything, the evidence suggests she was happy. She once told journalist Carrie James Tate that there's no percentage in the big money if you're not happy. Julia Lee liked Kansas City. She didn't want to move. She genuinely loved people. And the, working in the clubs on 12th Street gave her the intimacy with her audience that she thrived on. came here once. That's Julian Duncan again, Julia Lee's grandson. That's the only time she performed in Detroit. And I think this picture says 1957. My father, I know he was happy to have her here. But it was the last visit she would make. Julia died of a heart attack the following year in December 1958. She died young, just 56 years old. But she went out doing what she loved. Just the night before, she'd played her regular gig at the Highball Lounge on 12th Street, a few blocks away from where she started her career in the first place. She was an independent woman that was comfortable being on her own. She had her own apartment. She had someone to take care of her, a maid. The day of her funeral, the Paseo Baptist Church was filled to capacity with nearly 500 mourners, many of them musicians that Julia had known, like Jay McShann. Baby Lovett was an honorary pallbearer. She was buried in Highland Cemetery, not far from Charlie Parker's grave. Afterwards, Julia's son Frank brought her personal effects back to Detroit, where they sat untouched until Julian discovered them in 1999. Today, he's extremely proud to be the protector of her legacy. He keeps her album staged on her piano in Detroit, where he still lives. And when people come over to his house, he tells them about her. I like, that's my grand. That's who I was named after, right there. He's felt this way ever since he first heard her voice. To me, it underscores how powerful the act of listening to music can be, how it uniquely transports you to this specific time or place, and reminds you of people in a really vivid way. Sometimes that's hard when it makes you think of a person you never got to meet or a person you've lost. But sometimes it lets you relive your best memories. So what else we got here now, Chuck? In the closing hours, we've had three days and three nights together here. This is the final minute of the Dave Dexter interviews, and I want to play it because Julia comes up and only Julia. Just a closing question. How would you define the Kansas City sound? Well, I tried to do that in numerous liner notes down through the years, and I think uh, the beat was a little more urgent, and the way the saxophones used to start those riffs. Meanwhile, there'd be a trumpet playing a solo, but the saxophones would all be riffing. Not much subtlety in Kansas City jazz, I think. It's just good, hard-swinging music. I don't know. Maybe there isn't any definition for Kansas City jazz, although I promoted it for 50 years. <laughs> I love it, and I still do, and I think I'm going to miss some of these records that are going back home. 
But I dubbed off some cassettes and things of Julia Lee and some of my old friends. Dexter had a very special place in his heart for Julia Lee. It was the music of his youth, too. In a lot of ways, too, that was his touchstone to Kansas City. It's not just him. For three decades, Julia Lee was the Kansas City sound for a lot of people. When other musicians were in New York and Los Angeles, she was here, playing at Milton's Tap Room, listening to people tell her their woes, getting arrested, and singing so damn well that people didn't know how truly gifted she was at the piano. She's a reminder that while it's important to remember the critically acclaimed people that started out here, it's also worth it to remember the extraordinary people who never left. A People's History of Kansas City is a production from KCUR Studios. This episode was reported, produced, and mixed by Mackenzie Martin, with editing by Barb Shelley and me, Suzanne Hogan. Music this episode from Julia Lee, the Georgie Lee Orchestra, Benny Moten's Kansas City Orchestra, Count Basie and his orchestra, Pee Wee Hunt, Mary Lou Williams, the Fisk University Jubilee Quartet, and Blue Dot Sessions. Huge thanks this episode to Chuck Haddocks and the Mar Sound Archive for sharing research, archival audio, and making this episode possible. If you want to get in touch, you can find us at kcur.org slash peopleshistory, and we're on Twitter at phkcpod for more stories about the people who created Kansas City. I'm Suzanne Hogan. Take care, and thanks for listening. You listen to A People's History of Kansas City for a fresh take on local history. We want to honor these stories, and we take the reporting very seriously. And sometimes we just need to chill. Want to hang? Let's party! Join us at our annual benefit, Radioactive, on June 14th. NPR's All Things Considered host Ari Shapiro will make a special appearance, and boy, it's gonna be bumping. You gotta be there. Please come support our work. Ticket information is available at kcur.org radioactive.